You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Robert Gress, it's good to see you. Nice to see you too, Dan. Uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, part of the Meaning of Life TV, Blogging Heads TV network. Um, uh, Robert, I hope you don't mind if I make one sort of like brief like announcement just in terms of the currently uh, unfolding situation at Blogging Heads. Um, uh, carrying on from something that I wrote in the comments for the last Feminine Chaos um, dialogue, I'm sure people are aware and many have been talking about it that it looks as if Blogging Heads is sort of turning into a kind of a flea market. Um, in that each individual content producer is now creating their own Patreon accounts with paywalled content, some of which then later appears on Blogging Heads or some of which never appears on Blogging Heads and is ex- Patreon exclusive. Um, and I, you know, I have whatever feelings I have about this model, um, but it really is not relevant here. My only thing I want to say here is that um, Sophia will never, uh, never, uh, start a Patreon. We'll never have paywalled content. Um, and, um, at least so long as I'm in charge of it. And, um, I don't need to make money from, from my public intellectual work. Uh, um, my main aim is simply to reach as broad of an audience as possible, which of course paywalling, um, and stuff, uh, does not do it. it accomplishes the opposite um, by limiting your audience. Um, And um, I intend to stay with the Blogging Heads platform so long as it remains a viable platform. Now, if Blogging Heads kind of uh, sort of collapses under the weight of everyone becoming a kind of an independent contractor in what is an essentially, you know, a a free stall in a flea market, then I may reconsider, uh, in which case I may just move the program over to uh, the Electric Agora, uh, where it will remain uh, free and not paywalled, um, and where it will likely be joined by some other programs that me and the stable of writers at uh, at uh, Electric Agora have been have been talking about behind the scenes. Robert, do you have anything you want to say about this as a content producer or? Um, so we just get onto our business. Well, I'm I'm thinking about doing a reverse paywall model where we pay people to listen to us. <laughs> I think that will maximize our public impact. That would definitely maximize our public impact. Short of that, I might I might you know take off my shirt once in a while. Um, <laughs> um, New philosophies, sorry. Right. Hey, at least I'm not as ugly as most philosophers, right? I mean. <laughs> um, um, I don't anyway, know um, um, okay. uh, I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I'm Dan Kaufman. Obviously, by now we all know, we all know this. I think I'm joined by Robert Gressis, who also has, I believe, by now probably become a well-known uh, contributor and host on his own right. He is a, a professor of philosophy at Cal State Northridge. Um, Robert, we are here to discuss an essay that you just published in the Electric Agora. Um, um, uh, with the title of the philosophy rapture and um, and uh, you make some pretty provocative claims about philosophy philosophy research, although I suspect that you suspect that actually probably most people think the things that you 're saying and just out of 
various conventions having to do with politeness and manners and our, our um, current allergy to uh, conflict or at least some kinds of conflict. Um, maybe, maybe you, you want to just sort of um, bullet, like what some, some of your main points are and maybe, I mean, even start with where the art, where the idea came from. I mean, what set you down thinking this lot, this way, um, and uh, what what are the main points? Yeah, it's actually, I was thinking about this before we started talking. It's kind of, it's, I don't know if it is difficult for me to summarize, but it feels like it's going to be, but I'll say what started. It started as an observation in search of consequences. So I imagined, I think there's about 20,000 philosophers in the United States of America. And I imagined what happened if 19,000 of them just stopped producing philosophy. They just went away. They just disappeared. And then I wondered from the perspective of philosophy itself. Now, when I say disappeared, I, I, I was this a fantasy. Picked. Was this like a fantasy? Was it sort of like an erotic dream or was this something that, that was more like a horror movie um, to you? <laughs> so I'll, I have an answer to that. Um, I assume everything is erotic. So it probably was partly erotic, but also um, as is so often the case with me, <clears throat> I was in one of my um, pits of self-loathing. Oh, God. And, and, and I imagined what happened if I just never did any philosophy. And I thought, you know, when you're in a self-loathing mood, you, you tend to affirm the things that continue the mood, right? So I, I thought to myself, well, nobody would care if I stopped doing philosophy. Nobody cares what philosophy I've done to this point. But then I thought, well, I can't be the only one about whom that's true. There's lots of people... Uh, that the vast majority of Americans certainly haven't heard of, but then also lots of people, the vast majority of philosophers haven't heard of who are philosophers. A lot of people whose work isn't read, you know, you hear the statistic that something like only three or six people ever read any journal article on average. And so it made me think, well, um, what happens if all of us types, the types who are not sort of the most read, the most cited, the, the ones leading the field, what happened? What would happen if we all disappeared? If we were raptured, I put it in the article, like God takes us to heaven and leaves the uh, productive philosophers behind to wallow in their sins. And so I, I thought, well, my guess is that not much would happen to philosophy if that happened. And when I say to philosophy, I don't mean the teaching of philosophy. Obviously, if most philosophy teachers went away, right. disappeared from their classrooms, people would notice, right? I mean. Yeah, but 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 their research selves are raptured, right? Like they their 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 research selves died and went to research heaven, I guess. And and then you know all that was left behind were teachers in the classroom. And I thought, well, if you were just like looking at the journals, just you know, you were an avid reader of the journals, and that's your only contact with the field. You saw certain names regularly pop up. You saw certain topics regularly pop up. And I'm also imagining you're reading, like, the top 50 or top 25 journals or something like that. And um, would you notice? And I thought, well, you probably wouldn't notice. And then I thought, okay, what follows from that? And for a long time, I couldn't think of anything that followed from that. And so I thought for a while, and I thought maybe – Maybe a couple of things follow from that. Um, the first thing that might follow from that is that given how inconsequential most philosophers' research, I imagine, is, maybe this means that most philosophers shouldn't 
be pressured so much, whether internally or externally, to produce as much research as they do. Um, and so maybe the field as a whole would benefit, or maybe I shouldn't say the field as a whole, the field as a whole wouldn't be harmed if most philosophers, and I said in, in my paper, 95% of philosophers, 95% of philosophers, and I said the bottom 95%, by which I meant, I didn't mean in terms of quality, I meant in terms just of, uh, of like status in the profession, uh, where they teach, how often they publish, the kinds of journals they publish in. So what happens at the bottom 95% disappeared? And I thought, well, not much. So maybe that means those 95% shouldn't do much research. And then I thought, if it's true that the top 5% are the ones who do most of the research, well, that's actually not that many people. That's about 1,000 people. And so that means that it would be pretty easy for certain ideas to take hold within that group of 1,000 just because they talk to each other so much and they're exposed to each other so much. And so they could sort of see the philosophy world at any given moment as consisting of just a few problems, the ones that interest them. And they write about those and then they move on to the next thing and they write about those. And so it would mean that, that philosophy is kind of faddish. It keeps on changing from uh, place to place. But I, and I thought, well, that might be a bad thing if you think that the top 5%, their concerns are really not the concerns philosophy as a field should be dealing with. But that I thought, well, I'm not so sure that that is a bad thing because I tend to think most of the exciting moments in philosophy are produced by what I call great philosophers. And here by great philosophers, I don't mean top philosophers. Uh, the top philosophers are the people who teach at Harvard, but just because you teach at Harvard, it doesn't follow that you're great. You could teach at the University of Minnesota or something and be great. Um, and I thought, well, the great philosophers are generally the ones who push the field forward and their work is going to get noticed because it's great and it's just going to attract enough people eventually people start glomming onto it. So I concluded that basically the fact that most of the articles in the top journals come from the same people over and over isn't a bad thing. Uh, it's not a great thing, but it's not a bad thing because we just have to wait for the next Wittgenstein to come along and re-excite the field. And as for the 95%, I think it is a bad thing that they do so much research. So they get pressure to do so much research. I don't think it's a great use of their time and I don't know that it helps philosophy itself. So that's basically how I concluded, or what I concluded from um, what I call the guess, which is that if 19,000 of the 20,000 philosophers disappeared, nobody would notice and it wouldn't matter. So that's basically the essay in a nutshell. Um, now, you know, you and I have talked about this at length, and I I, I wrote a whole bunch of uh, comments in the, yeah. you know, in the comment section for the actual post. <clears throat> so some of the things I may ask you and say to you here are things that you've already heard, but obviously mm -hmm. the audience has not. Some of them though are things that I've thought of since, um, since uh -huh. we've spoken will be new. So um, this actually, is, I think is going to be one of the things that's going to be new. It, it, you know, I was thinking more about your, your argument that no one would notice. And um, mm -hmm. I wonder about that. Um, um, so let, let me sort of give you a sense of what I mean. You know, I suspect that what you're saying really is that no one who officially matters will notice, right? Um, because certainly people occupy smaller social spaces, right? 
I mean, so yes, I do occupy a space that consists of all philosophers, right? Um, but I also occupy a space that consists of philosophers uh, with whom I am directly and indirectly in converse. Um, so, you know, people like you and Spencer and uh, Oliver Trolley and um, uh, as well as colleagues of mine from my school, people from grad school who I still talk to, you know, Brian Leiter, who I'm kind of friends with, um, so on and so forth. And so you could say that there, you know, I also occupy sort of smaller philosophical social spaces. And certainly if people vanished from those, I would notice. And I suspect that if you or I vanished, they would notice as well. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess I would want to push you on nobody would notice. Well, when you say people would notice, and I wouldn't think, just notice, it would matter to them, right? Because yeah. you're engaged with each other. If you vanished and stopped producing any work, yeah. not only would I would, would notice, but it would, you know, it would be, it would be a blow to me because I enjoy our interlocution. Uh-huh. I enjoy publishing your work. I enjoy, and the fact of the matter is because of you, I've now come in contact with other people from whom I've benefited from engaging with. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, I would say it would be noticed in a very meaningful sense. So if you say by notice, do you mean if, if they physically raptured and those people disappeared, right? And like they were gone from earth. But I would miss your profile, your research profile. I would miss okay, your right. work, right? So, I would, so, so I'm, I'm imagining that just my, yeah, my, just my research profile. Yeah, I'd be very happen. unhappy if all of a sudden I had no more Robert Gress's pieces to publish, no right. more Robert Gress's interviews to do. And the same, I would say, with all these other people that are in what I would say is the so- smaller social philosophy social yeah. network I'm in. And I think that's so true of everybody. Don't we all occupy those kinds <laughs> of smaller, intimate, uh, more intimate philosophy spaces? Um, well, yes and no. So, so I guess now you're, you're pressuring me to give some details about the rapture that I hadn't really thought of one way or the other. So if people were professionally raptured, they could still, hold on, my cat's trying to get in. Um, he, he notices me. Um, if, if people were professionally raptured, they could still talk to each other, I imagine, about, about stuff that interests them. So just you mean ideas. just not publishing an academic journal? So you're not including, like, if you just stopped writing essays altogether, right, and stopped doing right. lot, these kinds of discussions. You're only talking yes. about peer-reviewed academic research. I guess I was because I don't think of um, the kind of stuff I write for the Electric Agora as um, advancing philosophy, right? It might um, help philosophy in the sense that it is a way of communicating philosophical insights to non-philosophers. And one of the things I said in my essay is that what I, I, I said there were five kinds of philosophers, and this is very crude, but it was great, very good, good, average, and bad. Um, and I thought that like most of the philosophical progress that happens happens because of the great and the very good. And then there's a little bit that the good contribute, but basically most of the things the good and below philosophers do is they explain the insights of the very good and great philosophers to other philosophers or to non-philosophers. So like, I, I, I mean, I don't know how valuable that is. I, I haven't thought about it. I, my gut is that it's pretty valuable. Um, but yeah, like I'm imagining I would not produce any more peer-reviewed research. And for instance, 
I don't think I'm friends with Spencer Case. I don't think I've read any of his peer-reviewed research. Uh, at, even though we're writing an, an article together for peer review. Um, I've read, I think, one of your articles about wisdom. Um, and then I have tons of colleagues in my department whose work I haven't read, like any of their work, um, even though, you know, I talk to them occasionally about their work. So, like, I know that I don't really cruise the journals at all anymore, um, just, I only, I only look at the journals when I'm writing a piece and I want to see whether or not people have already talked yeah, about it yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And it comes but, up in um, whatever research you're doing. It's either in a bibliography of someone else's essay yeah. or, or, yeah, look, I'm happy to restrict the, for the sake of the conversation to just academic peer review, uh, research. Um, I think I would still want to press the point a little bit. So let me give you an example of what I'm thinking of, um, so there are subcultures within the larger philosophy culture um, that are very robust and active in themselves, even while being almost completely ignored by and irrelevant to the larger philosophy culture, subculture. So one of the ones I'm thinking of is the Christian one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, within the Christian philosophy subculture, yeah. you know, Edward Fazer's research is of great significance, right? Right. Um, nobody outside of it could give a crap less or would know if the man disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow. Right. Um, right. Because most of the rest don't give a crap about contemporary Thomism. Right. Um, right. Um, to them, that's as irrelevant as anything done by anybody. Right. Um, um, and so I, I, I would want to even push back and say, look, relative to that subculture, mm-hmm. even their academic peer review research would be quite noticed if it disappeared, right? Despite the fact that it's of no relevance to the other 95% of people doing philosophy and certainly of no relevance to what you're calling the top people in the other 95%. You know, I guarantee you that Jason Stanley is not spending one moment of his entire waking life thinking about Edward Fazer, right? Um, um, and wouldn't know if he vanished off the face of the earth tomorrow. So what do you have to say about those kinds of examples? Right. So I have a couple of things to say. Um, the Christian philosophy example is interesting because some top philosophers are Christian philosophers. There's only one I can think of, a few I can think of. I can think of, I think, what I think of as top philosophers, but maybe you disagree. So like Michael Van and Wagen, Wolterstorff, Plantinga, although more and more Plantinga is being viewed as a crank by everyone outside of Christian philosophy. But uh, Robert Adams. There's a handful of people, but they're really not. That's because their work is bifurcated. Uh Their research is bifurcated. So I would almost want to say that they're split them up into two people. And let's just Uh talk about the ones that are inside the Christian bubble, right? Um, Their their, their work matters, right, To, to, to those people even if it doesn't matter to the people outside. Yeah, so so like a top philosopher like Van Inwagen, I don't know if he cares about Phaser. I know he interacts with philosophers who just do Christian philosophy, like um, Thomas Flint or William Lane Craig or something like that. Um, All right, William Lane yeah. Craig's a great example, right? I mean, he, there's somebody who's completely irrelevant, Right in academic philosophy at large, but with, within that smaller subculture, would be very relevant, right? Oh yeah, I mean, and actually, he's very relevant to just lay Christians. 
in a way I would say yes. no living Christian philosopher is. Yes, way Even more so than Plantinga or any of the others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But not and his so, academic work so much. I don't know. I mean, he's gotten, he gets his academic work published by some good presses, but like he's got an article in the Journal of Philosophy back in 1988, which is, you know, yeah. I've never gotten an article Substantial. in the Journal of Philosophy. Yeah. 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 I mean, he, he, he used to do a lot more philosophy of science stuff, I guess. And uh, since has just, just does you know what he does which is yeah he does apologetics apologetics yeah, right yeah. um but yeah so so that's an interesting thing so 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 i think not just of christian philosophy like there's also um a subculture of philosophers who do informal logic and interestingly or even within inform- subfields like smaller subfields philosophy aesthetics philosophy yeah. of literature right there are people within these frames that are pretty big within the frames but have almost no footprint all at all outside of the frame yeah. And I'm just wondering how that fits into your analysis. So, so I hadn't thought of that. My thinking is that I would guess that most of the top philosophers view those fields in a couple of ways. One, they might see them as intellectual backwaters, right? So like, sure, they produce a lot of stuff that they read, but really it's not of any quality or at least enough quality for us to take notice of. And if any of us were to do it, we would do a much better job than any of them who spent their, their careers on it. I would guess some of them, I mean, they wouldn't say it so bluntly, right. but I think some of them would think that. And then the other thing to say is the fact that it's not being taken up by what I've been calling top philosophers. And in the essay, I don't just call them top, I call them upper class philosophers. Just to make it clear, I'm making a quality versus status bifurcation. Yes. So, so the upper class philosophers don't really take notice of Christian philosophy or informal logic or aesthetics, basically, except for a very couple of small, you know, like, like Ken Walton, they'll, they'll take notice of, but um, you know, I don't know if they, I don't even know if they take notice of Noel Carroll and he's like, you know, published tons of stuff on aesthetics. Um, so I would say the fact that they don't take those fields to be relevant indicates their significance for quote philosophy itself. Cause I take it that there's a reason that the top, the upper class philosophers are concerned with the problems they are. And I don't think it's just trends. I think it has something to do with the broader intellectual culture, maybe even the broader social or political culture where those fields just aren't relevant right now or, or, you know, yet or whatever. So my guess guess is that they're not, they're not taken notice of by the top philosophers. And that's because the top philosophers don't think they're worth noticing. And so yeah. those people would disappear and, you know, they would notice that the top philosophers in the fields would notice, you know, Ken Walton and Noel Carroll realized, hey, we're the only two people left <laughs> in aesthetics or something, or maybe you'd still be in it. I don't know. But um, then, 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 yeah, they would notice. That's true. And to the extent every top philosopher is enmeshed in one of these subcultures that is not part of top philosophy, I suppose they would notice. That's interesting. I don't know what to, what to take from that, though. Yeah, I guess I, I'm... I mean, one of the things that's, look, there's, there's a descriptive element to what you're, to, to the paper, right? To the essay, right? Right. But there's also a kind of a, an evaluative element. And that, and that's sort of part of what's supposed to be, I guess, sort of the surprising part about it. You don't think that this is really a very bad thing, right? Um, yeah. um, and I guess part of what I'm pushing at is I'm wondering why you take the views or feelings or reactions of what you're calling the top philosophers 
to be something that anybody should think should provide some sort of a normative measure yeah. of either the discipline or of anything else. In other words, I guess, I mean, aside from the kind of the uninteresting tautological, well, that, that, that that's what it means to be the top, right? Um, is to be the person who decides the norms. You get into a little bit of a euthyphro problem there, right? I mean, um, 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 so I guess, um, I guess, yeah, what I'm wondering is why not just are you sanguine or happy with the top people coming to this conclusion about this hypothetical situation such that you are now ready, prepared to say, hey, I'd be happy if all these people just stopped researching tomorrow. Um, And why do you think that they're any kind of measure of anything? Why should anybody else think that they're any kind of measure of anything? I mean, like, why, why should I think? that what Jason Stanley thinks matters yeah, matters you, at all. Right. I mean, like to anything. Yeah. So, so here I, I, I will, I will make an, an ad hominem, uh, an ad Kaufman whatever. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I want to know what, why so I have you, seen you, I have seen you. Um, you recently, you wrote a comment in the blogging heads threads. Uh, it was in response to Robert Wright. I think he was talking to some, I don't know what he was talking to, but he was basically, he was not sanguine about the prospects of naturalism or something, or he was like saying that like there's natural teleology or something mm. like that. And yeah. you were saying like Dennett and Rosenberg have, you know, been writing about this for their whole careers. And these people are top philosophers. I actually, I don't, I don't know that you said top philosophers or great philosophers or something, but it was something like you have to engage with their arguments and, um, so why, you know, why should, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to mangle it here, but it's something like, why should we care what you say until you do? And to that, he might say, well, why should I care what they have to say, right? Who are, who's Alex Rosenberg and Daniel Dennett? Well, they're, they're the people that we credential and pay to educate people on these subjects. No one would right. pay so Bob Wright. No one would pay Bob, Bob Wright $5 to teach any of these subjects, but they would teach me, pay me, and they might pay me just as much as they pay Jason Stanley. Or Daniel uh-huh. Dennett, yeah. so I'm and I'm not a top philosopher. So I mean, one is an issue of whether you even have the remote credentials and education to speak in any kind of credible or authoritative way on the subject. But the other seems to me more a matter of a kind of a a kind of a pecking order within the realm of the credentialed and the credible, right? Um, okay, so your question is why should I, a credentialed philosopher? care about the bare fact that Jason Stanley says X until I hear the argument for X. Why should I be impressed that the people who you're calling top, which is purely a class distinction. Yeah. Why would I take guidance from that as to whether I should, I should think that it would be just fine if all the philosophy research disappeared with the exception of that done by the top people. Yeah. And so here, here, here is, I think the first of our major disagreements, um, which is, I think, by and large, the fact that somebody's a top, an upper class philosopher, as I'll call it, is good evidence that they're a good philosopher. Right. So that's what I was suspecting is that you take that these to be a substantial uh, overlapping of ca- of classes, right? I mean that 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 the top philosophers are also yeah. going to tend to be the good philosophers and vice versa. And I I'm yeah, interested in knowing yeah. why you think that. And I, and I think I said in the essay something like as substantial as we can get it, 
I'm right? fine with that. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm not accusing and, you of not allowing for any outliers. So I'm just curious why you think there's right. much overlap at all. So here, um, here, so I guess the way I put it in the essay is, first of all, I'm trying to think of a better way of figuring out philosophical quality and allotting prestigious positions to people based on their philosophical quality. I'm trying to think of a better arrangement for doing that than the one we have. And I'm coming up a little short in you terms mean, of doing you that. Mean, you mean in terms of getting into, you mean the filtration process that the top journals? No, uh, that the top departments use to figure out whom to hire. But they all go together, right? So you don't get a job in the top department unless you publish in the top journals. And top in both cases is defined entirely by selectivity, right? So what makes the philosophy philosophical review a top journal, but philosophical investigations not a top journal, has to do with the fact that philosophical review has a 3% acceptance rate and um, the uh, philosophical investigations has like a 20, 20% uh, uh, acceptance rate. So I guess what I, what I am asking you is why you think that that method of filtration controls for quality. Because I mean, I, I, I'm inclined not to think that. So, so I don't know that I would say it's just selectivity in terms of like acceptance rates. Um, well, what I, other I basis is there? Well, um, other maybe than subjective, it is. subjective impressions of right. the quality of the papers that appear inside. Yeah. So, so you have, um, you have a bunch of philosophers at a, like a, an upper class department and they're trying to pick somebody to join their ranks, either as an assistant professor or to be tenured. And they're looking at that person's work and they're judging it. And they're saying like, cause I, I was there at the university of Michigan when they were, I was like the graduate representative when they were trying to figure out, you know, whether or not they should offer a tenured position to somebody. Um, and one of the things they definitely don't do is they don't just say, hey, look at where this person is published. Since he's published, you know, six articles in Phil Review, let's hire him. They have a lot of faith in their own judgment. And they say, you know, I read those articles in Phil Review. I didn't like them. I don't think they did anything good, right? And so these are people who are like sort of leading the field in many ways. Like their research gets talked about the most. It gets discussed the most. I don't think it's just because it's the most visible. I think a lot of the times their research really captivates people and they think, wow, you did a good job on this. And so insofar as there is such a thing as philosophical quality, which I think you think there is, um, then, and, and, and I, I also don't know how, how um, subjective you think judgments of philosophical quality are, um, but I think there's a lot of, I, I guess I do think there is, some objectivity to it in the sense that um, by and large, some people I want to say write clearer than others. Some people come up with more original arguments than others. Some people come up with more fruitful arguments than others or more persuasive arguments than others. And just obviously there's subjectivity to some degree in all these things, but I don't think it's, you think I don't think it's completely subjectivity. You think that maps on to the, Class decisions. Yeah. yeah, I, I, yeah, pretty well because these guys, yeah. these people at the top have so much time, 
right, to, 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 to read these things. They have so much time to do research because of sabbaticals and because of low teaching load. They're constantly talking to other people who are at the other top universities. Yeah, but it's all, cir- it's all circular, right? I mean, and so what are they reading? They're not reading, you know, in other, in other words, that assumes that the things that they aren't reading don't have stuff as just good quality with just as good quality in them. And that's just false, right? I mean, the problem is it's all a feedback. Well, I mean, I can just tell you, I don't publish in those journals on purpose. I do read the other journals on purpose. I, and I can tell you there's just as much great material in those journals as there are in the others. Um, now you might say, well, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, then I would have to, I'd have, you and I would have to talk about it, but I, I, I would have to be convinced that you've actually bothered to read um, stuff that's outside of those circles. But I very consciously choose where I publish. Yeah. And I don't do it on the basis of selectivity. I do it on the basis of going back and reading through back issues of this journal to see what kinds of things they publish and what I think of them. And so I guess what I see you doing is a sense buying into an entirely insider's game that's being played. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why you would. It doesn't seem to be based on any kinds of evidence. It almost just seems to be based on sort of you being unduly impressed by these star people. Yeah. Um, you sound to me like somebody almost talking about Hollywood, right? I mean, I, 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 I sort of, you know, laugh a little bit because I know these people. I've debated many of them at conferences. They're actually hacks, right? And the way that they, the way that they got into where they are is by playing this inside game, is by sucking up, is by behaving oftentimes really unethically, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of the stuff that's going on under the radar is actually really terrific, right? So I guess I'm a little surprised that you're buying into what strikes me as a very obvious dirty insiders game one that i could actually give you concrete examples of what a dirty insider game it is i mean i used to be an editor of a blackwell journal and i can tell you that rock star papers don't even get refereed i'll just tell you that right now they don't get refereed they're automatically accepted yeah and by rock star paper no matter whether they're shite or not i've seen that happen over and over and over and over again so I, I'm just, just I'm, a little surprised why oh. you're buying into this whole Hollywood sort of thing. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is about Hollywood is that I'm not sure I buy it for Hollywood, which is sort of funny. Well, I'm, I'm analogizing this. I'm oh, saying I know, it's a I know. similar kind of game, right? Well, to the um, extent it is a similar analogy, that makes me Or pause, Broadway, right? right? I'm arguing that the, actually the off-Broadway philosophy that's being produced is actually a lot of it's a lot better than the so, five-star marquee stuff that you seem to be so impressed by. Yeah, yeah. Which I've been decidedly unimpressed by, less and less impressed by, certainly as recent decades have passed. I might have agreed with you more 50 years ago uh-huh. than I do now. Um, so, so okay, a couple of things. Yeah, please. Um, I'm sorry. That was a little bit long. So Yeah, no, there's so many things I want to say in response to this. Um, well, one of the things is that, you know, part of it is I've talked to people at the top, institutions. And I've talked to people at not the top institutions. And I found in my experience, the people at the top institutions were sort of quicker on their feet, were, were more erudite in sense of knowledge of all sorts of things that um, I've never heard of, you know, than people at the middling or lower institutions. Um, now, it, I, I'm perfectly willing to admit that I could have been 
subject to some kind of halo effect, right? I know this person has this great reputation. So I treat even the stuff they say that is um, questionable as unquestionable simply because it's they who are saying it. Whereas if a person at a middling university were to say it, then I would have leapt on it or something like that. Um, that's certainly possible. Um, you know, and I've read, you know, so-called classic articles. And I know you, you and I have uh, great differences of opinion about a lot of classic articles. But I find the ones that are classic, I tend to find quite rewarding. Now, I'm pretty, I always find something to like in just about every philosophy article. But the ones that are anthologized over and over again, I often find like, do more, more stuff happens in that. That's a tiny subset. You do realize that's a tiny subset of the deluge of crap these people are producing. I mean, I, I once, just for the sake of an essay that I was writing, I went to look to see how many p- things people like Fo- Jerry Fodor and David Velleman and stuff had published, and it's in the hundreds. And the percentage of that, those hundreds that are the sorts of things you would anthologize over and over again is a tiny fraction, right? Um, sure. I would say an enormous percentage of it is just flotsam and jetsam, right? I mean, it's just it's dispensable stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's no, 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 no better than, than all the other, other dispensable stuff. Um, um, I guess, um, I just, well, been wondering, yeah. have you actually, you know, really looked into, you know, I mean, I, I de- like I said, deliberately publish in, I mean, I've published in selective journals yeah, and I've deliberately stopped precisely because there, I increasingly find them to just be um, celebrity gossip sheets, far less interesting, far huh. less interesting than stuff that's being done by people who don't have such a huge stake in their reputation in the uh, industry, right? People who are just really much more purely engaged. Yeah. So, so let, let me ask you, them. let me ask you a bunch of questions. Um, first of all, real quick. And this, this is super silly, but I have to get out of the way because I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about it otherwise. What is the difference between flotsam and jetsam? I don't know. Oh, all it right. It might have not even been the best word. I just was sort of thinking of detritus, right? You know, just like. Yeah, yeah. No, I, now, now that you say it, I'm like, how do I identify which is the flotsam and which is the jetsam? But, okay. So, so I've got that out of the way. Second question is, um, of these articles that are anthologized, yeah. how many of them do you think are were written by philosophers who aren't great or very good. Do you think it's like fairly? Oh, no, no, none. I mean, I agree with you that there is such a thing as great and very yeah. good. Yeah. And I might even agree with you that there's an overrepresentation mm-hmm. of, let's say, the top people amongst the great and the good stuff that winds up anthologized. But I also would argue that that's largely not not unmeritorious. That is, that you if you made an effort and were less impressed by Hollywood, you could easily anthologize just as many really great articles by people nobody's ever heard of. Is my interesting? Yeah. Okay, I, I think that would be first of all. Side note: I think that would be a valuable project for a textbook, right? Oh, I think so to- too. Weren't you going to do a podcast like this? Don't tell. Yes, you've been yes, making. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if it was no, a, no, no. a big surprise. But I thought you've been you've been brainstorming doing a podcast like. Yeah, that. no, I am going to do a podcast. Uh, my, my hope is to do a podcast called "Philosophers You've Never Heard Of." Right. So, don't where, you think that that's why do you want to do that? Isn't it because you do think there's probably a lot of really interesting, smart people out there with with cool stuff to say, 
that just aren't getting noticed because they're just not making it in the in in the celebrity in the celebrity environment. Well, the main reason. Okay, this is a side note. But the main reason I want to do that podcast is to a see whether or not my theory is right, mm. right, and b to the extent it is right, try to understand why people are doing philosophy, right? If you're not a great or very good or even a good philosopher, and you know, obviously, a lot of philosophers don't fall into any of those categories. You know, what do you get out of it? What do you hope to get out of it? How has it been working out for you? I just, it's like almost um, anthropological or sociological. But I do think that um, I'm, I'm very open to the idea that I might discover that, hey, these quality differentials are a lot more, um, I don't know, diaphanous. Is that the word? Uh, like they're, they're just, they're, they're sort of ethereal, a lot more ethereal than I thought and, and not as robust as I thought. But um, let me let me go on. So, like, here's another question: How many of of the great philosophers of, of let's say, the 20th century? Because once we get before that, things get kind of yeah. Confused. It has to be um, within the contemporary professional disciplinary yeah. business. Yeah. How many of the great philosophers of the 20th century taught at great universities? Do you think, like, 50 percent, 90 percent, 10 percent? I would Gosh, guess it's got to be like know. 90%. I would say probably it was, it's overrepresented. I can give a lot of notable counterexamples. Can you give me two? Sure. So um, Robert Stecker, who is probably in the top five people working in aesthetics now, uh-huh. is, at cent- is at Central Michigan University. Um, okay. um, and you think he's a great philosopher, like up there with like – Nozick and Quine and I, I don't know that I would do that sort of comparison. I mean, again, you know, another thing I sort of am wondering about is whether outside of the areas, whether the notion of great irrespective of that really makes much sense um, given that the discipline is disciplinary now. Right. I mean, yeah. this is not a discipline that employs Montaigne's, right. I mean, this is a discipline that, employs specialists right and so i just don't know that i think that that's all that useful i'd say within aesthetics he certainly is one of the one of the best people working in it right um and he's alive uh, yes he's alive Uh um 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 and um you know i wish i could off the top of my head come up with more but i mean i know that there are more people who are at places that would sort of surprise you. Um, like what about um, Ken Wilbur? Was Ken Wilbur at like Minnesota or something like that? I don't know if he's great Although or not, University certainly. of Minnesota, I mean, a, a large That's state a, that, school is going to be, is going to have a PhD program and be relatively right. high, high end. Right. I mean, and in the sixties and seventies, that was a pretty, yeah. Um, school. Um, I'm thinking more about, you know, people who are like places like mine or something. Right. I mean, you know, of mm-hmm. which central Michigan university certainly is one. Right. Um, um, I want to say that that for a while there were some very good people in the University of Missouri, oh, St. Louis. Wayne State. Yeah, Wayne State. They had for four years, in 1963 to 1967, they had Planninga, they had Gettier, they had yeah. Larry Powers and his yeah. brother. Yeah. They had a couple other people beyond that, too, yeah. who went on but to – But look, I, I'm not going to plant a flag on this. I certainly would accept that they're going to be overrepresented – at the at the upper class institutions absolutely yes so here's the question sure Sure. why is that why did they get overrepresented unless the filtration mechanism was good i mean maybe you think it was good and it's not good anymore i I don't see that as following right in other words okay 
there could be a hundred great people, right? Mm-hmm. In a group, let's say. Um, and you and your gang want to create an elite. Okay. And so you choose a bunch of them and leave out a bunch of the others. Mm-hmm. And the sorting mechanism has nothing really to do with the quality. It has to do with all sorts of secondaries. Maybe, uh-huh. you know, with people with whom you politically agree with, people who don't sure. offend your, your sensibilities, people who, you know, yada, 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 yada. And then I can easily see the creation then of an institution that just perpetuates itself, right? Yeah. Um, and really, it's not that there isn't quality within their institution. It's that it's a mistake to suggest that the distinction between being in that institution and out of it is a determinant or, or reliably tracks quality, right? So, I mean, it could be the case that there's a high correlation of good philosophers with top institutions, but it could still be the case that your thesis is false, right? Well, um, let, 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 me, let me put some numbers on the table. So imagine there's 100 great philosophers in America, uh, not right now, but let's say, you know, 1970 or whatever. And let's say of those 100 great philosophers, let's say 30 of them ended at top universities, and then the 70 who didn't, because of all their research responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera, they just don't produce the kind of work that would allow us to recognize them as great. But if those, if any of those 70 had been at the top universities, they would have turned out to be great. And the 30 who were at the top universities, if they had been in the other ones, they sure. would not have turned out to sure. be great. Is that what your view is? That's partly what I'm saying. I mean, I also would say that um, I'm definitely a quality over quantity guy and um, um if you were to actually take, let's say, David Vellman's CV and that 120 or whatever it is, ridiculous number of publications that are on it, and you were to actually pull out the ones that are actually really good and the ones that are just sort of, you know, filler, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if at the end of the day I would find that that on a large scale, people like him have published more high-quality things than, than others, right? It's just that they've published more stuff, period. Uh-huh. And they're in they're in fancy digs right and and are part of the celebrity culture and everybody's already sort of you know assumed all these things and but i don't know that that means you know that that's what i mean when i say i routinely regularly find awfully really interesting stuff Mm -hmm. in the non-selective journals all the time and I, i choose to publish in them myself for that reason um i actually find more and more that the top journals have the least interesting material in them yeah. Um, and that's, I think, largely because of the celebrity Hollywood environment that that you think is a sort of a, a, a guarantor of quality. But my view has turned kind of like into a slum. Right. I mean, it's, it's right. And that way, it's Remember, not like Hollywood. Right. I mean, all the best movies now are not being made in Hollywood. They're being made, you know, on, in, on an independent level. Um, same thing with theater. Um, and um, I would say the same thing. Uh, with most popular culture. And uh, I think I could make the case the same is true in philosophy. So um, I have a few, like, let, let's go back to your um, great philosophers thing, because we might like, first of all, I don't think there, ju- I just don't think there are that many great philosophers around like, and by great, I don't mean just actually great, but potentially great too. Like, I mean, if, if you take everybody who was like very successful in theoretical physics or whatever, and you made them go into philosophy, I don't have any strong sense of how well they would do in philosophy or not. Um, but may, maybe a lot of those people would do well in philosophy. But let's just say you have 
you know, the distribution of talent. Like you have X great thinkers and some percentage of X goes into theoretical physics. Some percentage goes to the financial industry. Some goes to tech industry and you get your percentage in philosophy or who are interested in philosophy. I mean, just looking at any field, I think for just about any field, there are greats and there are very, very few of them. So like to the extent you catch a fair number at the universities, they're doing a good job. Now I know one of the things you think and I don't know enough to disagree with you, is that the number of great philosophers now is a lot less than it was, say, 40 years ago, maybe even a lot less than it was 30 years ago. Or Certainly 20 years among ago. the ones I'm aware of. I don't pretend to know all the philosophers, right? But right. Um, certainly within the celebrity ranks. Yeah. And so, so the, the question is, like, so you, you think it's, it's – it's either the filtration mechanism has gotten worse over the last 40 years, or you think that just the best, the people who would have been great are just not interested in philosophy right now, or they're turned off by it because of how it's being run or something like that. But that 40 years ago, it was working better, or at least there was something about philosophy that was more exciting that attracted people to it. I take it. That's your view. Well, I mean, if you're asking me why I'm a, why I, Let's just accept as a hypothetical that I'm right that there's been a precipitous decline mm-hmm. within the celebrity uh, ranks of philosophy yeah. of quality of quality. Sure. Um, and now you're asking me, well, why do I think that happened? Um, I, I would say there's probably a good half dozen reasons I would cite. Some of them have nothing to do with philosophy at all and have to do with demographics and generations. And I think in any discipline, mm-hmm. the more and more millennials and Gen Zs are in it, the worse it's going to get. Because I do think that these are really highly socially and dysfunctional and poorly acculturated generations of people that mm-hmm. don't really know how to function in adult institutions. Um, so I do think that you know one of the main things I notice in today's celebrity culture in philosophy is just how dysfunctional. Um, and sort of, you know, personality disordered laden, it, the ranks seem to be. Um, and I, I, I think it has nothing to do with philosophy. I think that has to just to do with the unfortunate way in which the baby boomers and Generation X have raised their children, right? I mean, we've done a terrible job. And the result is terrible adults who then go in institutions and ruin the institutions, right? So that, that's sort of one thing I would say. So one thing I would say about it has nothing to do with philosophy. It has to do with the generations of people that increasingly are filling the ranks of philosophy, which is why there's this horrible sense that as people die off, they're not being replaced by people of equal quality, right? Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is also generational, has less to do with philosophy. I think that young people today are much more poorly educated. Um, we, we really, you constantly read this constant flattering of them. Oh, this is the most educated generation ever. Da, 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 da. My students don't know what Watergate is like, okay. My, my students are, are, I would be humiliated to, to admit what they know and pu- to admit what they know in public. Um, basically I wouldn't tell anyone, right. I'd be so embarrassed at how, at how little I knew. Um, they don't know any history even of the last 50 years. Um, 
They're not particularly well read. Their, their cultural memory extends back only about five minutes, whereas my cultural memory, the way I was raised, the environment we were raised in, went back at least two generations, right? The cultural, the cultural memory and understanding that we had. Um, so they're also very tunnel visioned um, in terms of, in terms of the way they approach things. So that's the second thing I was just, as I said, there's just much poorer educated across the board. Um, But then there's other things that I would attribute to the celebrity culture itself. I do think that once you create this hermetically sealed insider game, the longer it goes on, the weaker everybody in it gets sort of, sort of like uh, an unnaturally separated gene pool. Um, Mm -hmm. This gets sort of weaker and weaker. And I do think that um, metaphorically speaking, there's a lot of that that's gone on too. So yeah, you know, Jerry Fodor is a brilliant philosopher, but the fourth generation of his hand shows of his disciples are not nearly as good. Right. Um, um, And that's something that I I actually think you'd expect. Right. Um, Because there just isn't this constant, you know, that's why I I actually. Progression to the mean. If I was in the celebrity culture, I would want to constantly expose myself to people like you and me, right? To make sure that I wasn't just buying my own bullshit because all I'm, all I'm sort of surrounded by is, is a cheering squad, right? You know, how is Kate Mann, someone like Kate Mann, ever going to figure out that what she's writing is shit? If the only people that ever she ever talks to are people who tell her what a genius she is and who celebrate her as like, you know, the greatest woman of our era, right? I mean, she's never going to find that out, right? Um, and so I also wonder about your, your point in that, don't you think there's kind of a gene pool problem within the top, philosoph- the top philosophy ranks that the longer and longer they remain isolated in that way, and the less and less they have to do with the unwashed masses, they're actually the worst they're going to get, right? Yeah, so so a couple things. Um, just to note, I don't agree about your claim about uh, Gen Z and millennials being worse educated, but I don't think that matters right now. I think that's demonstrable. I mean, we could talk about that. I think that that's actually very easily demonstrable. But Oh, uh yeah, I, you, I've been teaching. I'd be for curious about your demonstration. I've been. Te- that, oh, I could give you one. I've been teaching for twenty five years. If yeah, I tried. If I tried to give my st- and I've taught over ten thousand students. Okay? Yeah, but if but, I if I tried to give my students today the workload I gave my students twenty five years ago, I'd have an open rebellion. If I tried to enforce the standards I enforced twenty five years ago, everyone would fail. Mm-hmm. The number of people that come through that I'm impressed by has just shrunk. And I'm not nearly by myself in noticing this. This is something that per virtually every co- colleague in my department will tell you, no, no. In, in my university will tell you. And now we're talking about have people who have taught hundreds and hundreds of thousands of students, right? I mean, this is a pretty well-known thing, right? Um, okay. I, <laughs> SATs from that. back in the day relative oh, yeah, to that, now. That, that I take more seriously. Um, 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 high school say, curricula, high school curricula. Look at what yeah. my daughter had to read as a sophomore in high school versus what I had to read as a sophomore in high school versus what someone like Robert Heinlein at a rural school in the 1930s or 20s yeah. had to read, which included shit in Greek, okay? So – uh, to my mind, I, I will tell you in all honesty, I mean, I'm perfectly happy we're having this conversation. I actually think denying it is kind of a joke. It's, it's, okay. it's a joke. It's not even serious, right? 
Well, in my okay. view. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, 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 we can talk about that later, maybe, maybe off air. But um, let's talk about uh, regarding the top philosophers. Um, I think, like, uh, I have, I have two things to say. I, I, first of all, my impression is that there aren't top philosophers now like there used to be. Um, now, well, other than like impression. other than geriatrics. Right, like Kripke's still alive. Yeah, and Susan right? Hack is still walking around. Right, and, you know, Gibbard is alive. Kate yeah, Fine's alive. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but among the like fifty-year-olds, sixty-year-olds, forty-year-olds, I don't get the sense. Now, I wasn't around during the David Sonic boom, for instance, so I don't know how many philosophers were kind of like immediately recognized as greats in their time. I got the sense Kripke was, I got the sense Lewis was and Davidson was and, and Searle, I don't know, but I imagine. Um, but now I think part of the reason is that a, it might be the sort of thing we don't recognize for like 20 years from now. Maybe we'll say, Oh gosh, that Ted Sider was a lot better than I thought or something like that. I don't know. Um, the second thing though, is that if I'm right though, if my impression is right that there aren't the greats now, like there used to be, my diagnosis would be mainly hyper-specialization where um, there's like Tyler Cowen has this great stagnation thesis, right? Where he says, we haven't been very technologically productive since 1973. We had tons of um, big, huge breakthroughs up till then, but then things slowed a lot. And he, one theory is that a lot of the low hanging fruit was picked. And so to get the, the higher hanging fruit, is just harder. And so like general philosophy of science was huge in the 70s. <clears throat> but then people started to say, well, you can't really talk about general philosophy of science because each science is so different from each other science. And so we don't need philosophy of science. We need philosophy of physics. We need philosophy of chemistry, maybe even philosophy of like quantum mechanics and philosophy of, um, I don't know. <laughs> I can't think of any other. Philosophy of uh, biology. Right, philosophy of biology, but like even within philosophy of biology, you know, philosophy of genetics, etc. Yeah. And so- the kinds of general frameworks, I don't know that anybody accepts any general framework for a philosophy of science that's supposed to apply to them all. So like they they had great imagination, people like Kuhn and Foyer Abend and Lakatosh and Larry Loudon and stuff like that. But, um, but nowadays I, um, I think that, that the, the problems are just harder and to, to be a great philosopher, I think a, a lot of people have this conception that it requires a lot of, um, generality. And so, you know, you still have non-empirical disciplines like metaphysics, where an epistemology and philosophy of language, well, actually, that's pretty linguistics-y now, but um, you still have some armchair philosophy that's that's trying to, that, that would be where you get the greats from. But because it's just so much less plausible to so many people to, to make it non-empirical, you're just not getting people recognizing greats. That, that That's sort of like my theory about it. But that doesn't mean that that they're not great. It just means that the kind of things that people used to do to make themselves great, which was these grand systematic projects just aren't on yeah. right now. Yeah. And so um, the quality might be as good, but it's just our conditions don't allow for it to emerge in the way it used to. So that'd be my, like my theory of the lack of greats. And I do, like I said, I share your impression that there is a lack of greats. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds of all of our disagreements about philosophy itself, because I suspect that a lot of the disagreement on this front has to do with what we take. So you say that, you know, you think things are much more difficult now. I don't think so at all. Um, oh, interesting. Um, 
uh, I don't think the problems are much more difficult. I think that philosophers have made the mistake in pursuing a lot of the problems way beyond their shelf life, right? Um, uh-huh. um, and they should have just stopped and moved on to something else. But no, I don't think that the problems that philosophers are facing today are harder than the ph- problems that um, uh, Davidson and Fodor's generation were, were facing or earlier. As a matter of fact, I thought, I think the opposite is the case. Um, but again, people also like to say that, you know, millennials face much greater challenges now than anybody before. And I think that that's just demonstrably false too. Um, and I just think we're all engaged in a kind of a really weird game of lying to each other and to ourselves. I'm not sure exactly why. Um, um, but, um, but, um, you know, I would argue. I would argue that I think it's demonstrable that this generation has it the easiest of any generation that's come before, um, and I think that that's easily demonstrable. But I don't want to get into the weeds of, of all of that um, um, because it's not really relevant to your paper, to your essay. Um, um, but let me ask you. I do want to ask you about your diagnosis or your your interpretation or whatever you want to call this. Uh, your account of why there aren't greats. Um, by coming at it at another angle, um, just as a general matter, forget about philosophy. Mm-hmm. Do you not think that very cocooned, internally focused celebrity cultures over time begin to suffer a gene problem, a gene pool problem? Um, like my gut answer is yes, they would they would become myopic and they would benefit from having a diversity of perspectives where people would look at the problems in a different way. Um, that said, from what I, from our previous conversations, one of the things that you are going to push me or did push me on is that people who are like uh, greats or very goods or whatever benefit. Sometimes they benefit more from talking to goods or averages or bads or even non-philosophers altogether, even freshmen, introductory freshmen, they benefit more from those kinds of conversations than they benefit from talking to other greats or other very goods because greats and very goods are in these, as you said, like hermetically sealed atmospheres. And where they're surrounded by sycophants. Yeah, I've... I'll take your word for that. I haven't been enough in those environments to 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 know the degree of sycophancy, but I mean, I would bet. Yeah, I bet you're right. Just that's why they're so nature. shocked when they get when they walk outside. Yeah, you can just. I, I'm just always constantly amused by. I partly get some pleasure from this. The sort of the shock they are at someone like me, right? And they just you can yeah. just tell they're stunned, right? It's like no one's ever spoken to them this way before, right? No one's ever, no one's ever just turned right around and looked him in the face and said, you're talking crap. Right. But, but now, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> you could just see you, it, right? They're, they're so you, stunned. You, which people are stunned? How old are we talking here? 30s? 40s? Oh, God, I've had, like this, I've had this experience age. with people much older than me. I mean, I've had this experience just going, I, this is why I love going to conferences. This is why I miss conferences so much is that it's the one time that the celebrities can't hide from the unwashed masses, right? Mm-hmm. And they have to answer your question or look like a fool, right? In front of their, in front of the people whose opinion they do care about. And so it's the time, it's, it's like, it's like seeing people when, you know, in bars, right? It's the only time you ever see them as they actually are. Um, and, um, and, uh, I just get this sense. I'm a little surprised that you don't, you know, you've been in these elite environments as I have been. Um, and, um, I guess I'm just a little surprised 
that after having been in them, you continue to be so impressed by these people because they're really not very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, my, so, so here's, okay, here's a couple reasons why that might be. First of all, I was at Michigan as a graduate student. You were at Michigan I was there as, as an undergraduate. undergraduate. Yeah. I don't know how Michigan's culture in the 90s, when I was there and you were there, uh, I was there in the early 90s. I was there. Oh, you were? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was there in the 90s, like 90, 99 to 2007. So really I was there the early knots. And um, the questions were pretty aggressive, right? Like speakers would come and they, they'd be like Lewis Loeb would not hold back. Oh yeah. Um, but that was always at, at a horizontal level. Uh-huh. So, oh, I see. So you're saying they're, sh- they're not shocked at getting hard questions. They're shocked at getting hard questions from someone beneath their status. They're, they're shocked at getting, they're shocked at me getting questions from me. They're not shocked at getting questions from other celebrities, right? That's just uh-huh. an elaborate dance that they all engage in, right? Um, 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 because no, I mean, end- no, it's not, it's not an elaborate dance. Like oh, these questions are hard. Is. Of course it like, is. Like I, I saw, and I don't mean to call him out because I think he does good work, but I saw David Chalmers just get read dead to rights at Michigan at a Michigan talk he gave. And he had really no response. No, I saw, and, I've seen that too, but it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter how often that happens to you. None of it's never would never be sufficient to unseat you from the celebrity table. Right. I mean, what I mean by elaborate dances, there's this sort of a tacit agreement among all of them that no matter how hard we kick the crap out of each other and no matter how poor we wind up looking as a result, um, it's not going to affect our place at the celebrity table. And no matter how much stuff, great stuff, uh, people like the Kaufmans of the world produce or how many times they kick the crap out of us in public, it's not going to do anything to gain them a position at the celebrity table. In other words, your spot at the celebrity table has very little to do. Mm-hmm. You know, once you're at it now, I'm, I, like I said, I don't disagree that there's going to be sort of overlap over representation of the good amongst the celebrity, mm-hmm. but I take that had to do have to do entirely with factors that I would say are largely non-meritorious, non-meritocracy related factors. Um, but once you're at the celebrity table, there's really nothing that can get you removed from it other than, uh, norms violations right by which you mean stuff like sexual harassment or do you mean like taking wrong positions no 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 i'm both 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 because scott soames is a trump supporter before yeah he's still at the table right and and they're starting you know you can start to see all all that has you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop right i mean i mean (laughs) um um someone like you know searle right um, oh, well, yeah, people were already starting to sort of start to grumble about him because he seemed to have a lot of right wing views um, right. or at least centrist views. Um, and then all that had to happen was one, you know, thing that, you know, something to come out and now he's finished. Right. I mean, you know, you can erase, you can erase him. And now we're already, you know, you, you, we're already now a decade into the conversation of whether anybody should ever teach his stuff again. There's a whole, oh, yeah. you know, there's a whole drumbeat now to sort of never teach people who've been excommunicated that way. But notice it never happens because you've produced shit philosophy or because you've gotten absolutely humiliated in public by some questioner and it's mm-hmm. revealed that you're that you're kind of a shit philosopher yourself, right? It never happens because of that, right? It's only because you violated one of the norms of the uh, of the celebrity culture, right? Well, hold on. By 
it happening. You say it never happens because you've, you know, been you're never banished by from the, you're never banished from the celebrity table once you're at. And, and what what banished would mean functionally is you find it harder to get your work published in the top journals. Yeah, you wind up like People all the other poor jerks. Now your articles actually get refereed. They don't automatically uh-huh. get re- get accepted. You're not automatically invited to everything. You're you're not not automatically you know, given a pass, you know, by people, right. you're not, your Grad work, students is, not, don't your work, work with you. is not uncritically just celebrated and cheered all across the universe. Right. Um, you wind mm-hmm. you're like everybody else, right? <laughs> uh, curiosity, and this is, uh, this is, side note, ha- has this ever happened where somebody gets banished from the celebrity table just for producing shit work? Like when I say the, that, I don't mean now, I can tell. any decade, any not, decade. I have no, you know what? I couldn't tell you. I mean, I, I don't, I, I wasn't around in the previous decade. So all I have is the, are the papers and right. to some degree, what I know, you know, through books like Wittgenstein's poker and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't, I just don't know. I mean, I was under the impression that, um, that G. E. Moore's esteem went down substantially as people more and more began to think he was kind of a third rate or second rate mind, right? That, that, that his reputation did sink within the, within the celebrity culture. Um, That's posthumous, right? But I don't know. I don't know. I think even while he was alive, I mean, um, I think people like Wittgenstein started to started to make people start to make people wonder whether Moore really was any, was really all that good. Um, 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 but yeah. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, um, I just I do so, know, however, that in the contemporary, it really doesn't happen, right? Um, let me just ask you what you think is happening at the top places. Then, like you're saying that a lot of the top philosophers are only okay, and so they judge things by their standards of what they think is important, and they're not that great at assessing arguments or at coming up with their own arguments or seeing. Um, or being able to at least see beyond their sort of limited circle of concern to see that there's other kinds of ways of doing philosophy and that they're reproducing themselves because they say, well, that's not philosophy. This is philosophy, or that's not a good way to do it. This is a good way to do it. And then as a result, a lot of people who would be great or very good don't get admitted to the table. We don't hear about them because it's so much harder for them to publish their work. And that basically the way these people got into power in the first place is that there were great people like Jerry Fodor or whatever, who had descendants who were less good and they had descendants who were less good. And then they're just sort of like trying to work out the last remnants of the Fedorian program because they can't think of anything else. And now we have this kind of um, philosophy that chases trivialities that uh, doesn't really care about being taken seriously by the world outside philosophy. And that um, as a result, good people won't find that kind of philosophy interesting, but because they don't find it interesting, they won't do it. And because they don't do it, they don't get picked. And because they don't get picked, they don't get to the top places. And so that's the story. Partly. I mean, you, you, you're running together things that I would want to sort of give also separate accounts for. I mean, I do think, and I've written about, I've published this, that piece I did in philosophy now last year. Um, I do think that there's an entirely separate line of fault that goes back to the very disciplinization of the, of the subject. Right. Um, um, right. I don't think philosophy is well served by specialization. And so, or at least I don't think it's well served when that's overwhelmingly what it involves. I mean, I think that there's room for some special, I think about maybe 30% of philosophy should be specialized. 
And I think overall there should be a lot less. I mean, I agree with you. I think there should be a lot less academic research, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to reduce it in one camp and not the other. I think there should be a lot less of it across the board. And I actually think that the celebrities are the most egregiously guilty of overpublication, mm-hmm. right? Do you think we need less from them and more from the non-celebrities? I actually, or not even more say, from the I would actually say I would, I would love – I would think philosophy would be a much healthier discipline if the celebrities all took – there was a moratorium on celebrity publishing for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. I, think we, I think the whole discipline would be reinvigorated. Um, um, I, think that, I think that the current celebrities are going to destroy the discipline. Um, but that's um, for other reasons. I mean, there's also an ideological component that used to not, that didn't used to be there. It didn't used to be the case that you had to be a super radical left-wing progressive in order to be able to function within the discipline and to be acceptable within its institutions. That, that didn't used to be the case. It's be- increasingly becoming the case now, right? Um, which is only going to make the gene pool even more incestuous inbred and thus produce even more if you want to pursue the analogy you know uh def- deformed work right um yeah so i i'm not i'm not as confident as you that a moratorium on the greats or on, i shouldn't say the greats a moratorium on the upper class production of philosophy would reinvigorate it like i think to myself you know there's a bunch of people at not top schools who are students of these people who are the upper class philosophers and they were formed in large part by their education by these upper class philosophers. And so I would imagine what we'd hear is just more of the same except worse. But you're going to say, I'm guessing that no, that's not what we're going to hear because they interact with a different sort of people. And so they, they, they're going to care about more, different I've sorts of I've been much problems. more affected by the experiences I've had since being uh-huh. under the tutelage of the celebrity philosophers than than before it right i mean in other words who i am now what i do now is much more affected by my last 20 years at missouri state than it's influenced by being the student of jerry Fodor and stephen schiffer and hartree field and all the celebrities that i was a student of in the 80s and in the 90s so yes i mean i i think that most people you know are affected by their their substantial lengthy worth work experience and yeah being being a journeyman you know out out in the out in the you know the the among the masses and 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 working in the sort of the blue collar academic economy i think give you a perspective and uh that actually uh is a lot more grounded and a lot more in touch with what i think are interesting philosophical issues than the obsessions and interests of people in these very unrepresentative elite, increasingly weird spaces. Right. Yeah, so let, let, let me, let me ask you, cause we're almost out of time. Yeah. 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 But if there's, and I'm putting you on the spot and if you can't think of an answer, that's totally fine. Maybe you think about it and tell me later. Can you think of one area in philosophy, an area, a problem, a problem that there's too much work on or, a problem that there's not enough work on. Like maybe you think there's too much work done on disagreement or maybe you think there's too much work done on like, I don't know. Uh, like the only contemporary issue I yeah, do is disagreement. I, I, I can easily answer what is there too much work done on. 
Yeah. Identity and social justice related issues. Okay. And that's occurred across the board in the humanities and the social sciences, I'm guessing. Yes, I would say in general, we would all benefit from not hearing a word about any of that for about a decade. About a decade. <laughs> I do. So what um, about I, also think it would, I also think it would heal a lot of our social divisions. Um, um, in terms of what's being underserved. Um, yeah. I can give you one, maybe. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to hear yours. Um, I do have some, but I'd like to hear what you think. So I read this book called Passing on the Right which is about how there's a lot of conservative, not a lot, but there's some conservative academics in academia who sort of conceal their conservatism because they don't want to get in trouble. And that if they could be more open, like psychology, I couldn't say about this about philosophy, but psychology might pursue different kinds of issues. Like for instance, um, virtue. Psychologists don't really study virtue. Um, Christian Miller is, but he's like one of the few where, you know, are there enduring positive character traits that have like social and they just, apparently that's not really studied according, according to what I read. Yeah. As for philosophy, like if I'm trying to think, okay, what are some underrepresented groups in philosophy, like underrepresented at the top places? I, you know, I do think probably conservatives are, are underrepresented. Um, I'm guessing like a lot of world religions that um, exist like Hinduism or Buddhism are, I don't know about Buddhism, but Hinduism and like Islam are probably underrepresented. But I don't know if you think those are problems that I thought you meant subject. I thought you meant subject areas. So the no, one that I'm I was going to think of subject areas. So the one I that can't. I was going to say, and this is an actual subject area, but it's this one that's woefully under underworked in, mm-hmm. and that's philosophy of history. Um, ah, I actually okay. think that that is a hugely important subject. Precisely because it gets at very crucial issues, um, um, one of them being the relative standing of historical knowledge, let's say, between and let's say uh, in antiquity and and uh, the modern era, right? You know, what mm-hmm. kind? How should we understand claims about antiquity? Historical claims about antiquity. Um, you know, this comes up a lot in you know in in, in the apologetics dialogues having to do with the historical. Jesus and the historicity of the stuff in the New Testament. But right. I think the issue generally is of enormous importance because I think that a lot of confusion and mistakes happen by, by treating claims, historical claims equally, regardless of the era that they're, that they're from. Right. Um, um, so I think that's an area that's wildly underserved that really, could use a lot of uh, exploration. Um, and, it, and it is a subject. It's just not one that anybody, that anybody works in. I would say something similar about philosophy of education. Uh-huh. Um, um, I would also say something like this about philosophy and literature. So yes. And I why do you think, think that is? Why, well, like, do I think it, why are they under? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, these are all, there's going to be different reasons for both, but like of those three, why do you think people don't study? Like I have a guess as to why people don't study philosophy of history. And my guess is that they just think philosophy of history means does history have a direction? The answer is no, it doesn't. The end. That'd be my guess, right? That it's like we there, there's no reason to have it anymore. Right. And you're saying it's not a subject because people don't really understand what the subject is. They have a stereotype. Yeah, well, what's there to disagree They have a stereotype about. of it, right? They don't yeah. realize that there's all sorts of really crucial epistemic questions that right. it addresses. And, like if you make it philosophy of historiography. Yeah maybe that will attract more people yeah. than if it's like, does history have a direction? What about the other two? 
Yeah, for philosophy of education, I I bet you that's going to start to pick up. I bet you it will, because I think once we start to see a bunch of attacks on higher education about its funding, philosophers will go into self-defense mode and they're going to cherry pick the literature and they're going to like, and I have seen, you know, philosophers like Martha Nussbaum, who I think is a very good philosopher. I've looked at her stuff on, you know, the value of the liberal arts and it, and just about everything I've read is platitudinous. It's very cliche written. I agree. Yeah. And it's amongst her least worthy stuff, I think. Right. I mean, I just feel like philosophers can do better. And I think for philosophy of education, when they think of that, they think of, do I want to get into the slogans game? Nah, I don't want to. Like, I don't want to write an inspiring manifesto or something like that. And they just, they don't realize how, um, how tenuous their situation is. Because like, to me, philosophy of education is like my 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 specter yeah it's one of your it's also me. one of your main areas of interest i mean it's one of the things you right. talk and written about the most and and what about live philosophy and literature i just think most philosophers don't read much literature yeah so i was going to say that about history and literature and that i think that the, the 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 lack of philosophy in these areas is partly reflective of the lack more generally mm-hmm. of interest in these areas so i think people don't know any history and people increasingly don't read any literature and so it's not all that surprising that it filters up, right? And there's not much philosophical interest in it. But there are areas that I think would actually be really important to revive interest in and yeah. would, to a certain degree reinvigorate philosophy as a discipline. Um, but I know you have to go. And so let's, let's just drop, end this now. But I would like actually to do a part two because there's a lot of stuff in the essay we didn't get into. And it's really like- affording us the opportunity to talk yeah. across a whole bunch of subjects having to do with philosophy and higher higher education that I really think are interesting and important. So if you don't mind doing another one, uh, let's yeah, just leave just another, right now. <laughs> the rest of a part two, okay? Okay, yeah. And yeah, you've got a part two with Kevin Curry-Knight coming up, I hope. I do. I love the I first do. part. I do. Thank right. you very much, Robert. Thanks, Dan. And I'll and talk to you soon. Yeah. Ciao.